This history segment is going to be a little different from the others I've posted. I won't be giving you the hard facts with dates, times, and references in the sort of cliff notes style that I've done on my other history topics. I want you to kind of listen to this as the grandiose story of man. It takes a pseudo-philosophical approach to it, but the stuff that's being said does make logical sense, especially when the points start stacking onto one another. Certain parts may seem repetitive or disjointed, but it's cause certain segments will be summarized and then further elaborated on. Just keep that in consideration. The Economic Elements of Civilization Note, the word civilization will be used in this volume to mean social organization, moral order, and cultural activity. While culture will mean, according to the context, either the practice of manners and the arts, or the sum total of a people's institutions, customs, and arts. It's in the latter sense that the word culture will be used in reference to primitive or prehistoric societies. End note. In an important sense, the savage is also civilized. He carefully teaches his children the heritage of the tribe. That establishment of economic, political, mental, and moral habits and institutions which it has developed in order to maintain itself on the earth. It is impossible to be scientific here because when you call other humans savage or barbaric, we probably aren't expressing an objective fact, but instead displaying our fierce bias for ourselves and our timid shyness and hesitation when exposed to alien ways. It is without a doubt we underestimate these simple peoples when they have so much to teach us in hospitality and morals. If we list the basis and constituents of civilization, we'll learn that the savage or barbaric nations invented or arrived at all but one of them, leaving nothing for us to add except luxuries, embellishments, and writing. Maybe at one point they were civilized, and desisted from it considering it a nuisance. So we need to make sparing use of the words savage and barbaric when referring to our ancestry. Preferably, we'll call these people primitive. The tribes are groups of people that make little or no preparation for unproductive days and little or no use of writing. And in contrast, the civil may be defined as literate providers. 1. From hunting to tillage. Three meals a day seems like common practice now, but it's actually a highly advanced institution in civilization. Primitive man gorged themselves or fasted. Tribes and groups of people across the globe considered it weak and improper to save food for the next day. For some groups, it was always either a feast or a famine, and their reward for work needed to be immediate. There is a bit of wisdom in this improvidence, as with many other primitive ways. The moment man begins to think of tomorrow is the moment he passes out of the Garden of Eden into the veil of anxiety. A small cloud of worry settles over him, greed is sharpened, property begins, and the bliss of ignorance and indifference man has for tomorrow disappears. Of what are you thinking? Robert Peary asked one of his Inuit guides. I do not have to think, was the answer. I have plenty of meat. 
not thinking unless we have to. There's a lot to be said about this nugget of wisdom. There were difficulties in this carelessness, and those organisms that outgrew it ended up possessing an advantage in the struggle for survival. The squirrel that gathers nuts for a later feast, the bees that fill their hive with honey, and the ants that store food for rainy days and inhospitable seasons. These organisms were some of the first progenitors of civilization, and it was them or other subtle creatures like them that taught our ancestors to provide for tomorrow with the surplus of today. Or, in other words, to prepare for winter during the summer. If you don't believe me, then just look at Aesop's fables, specifically the ant and the grasshopper, a story which basically explains the same principle. Imagine the skill our ancestors had in order to pull from land or sea the food that was the basis of their simple societies. They pulled things from the earth with their bare hands, they imitated or used the claws and tusks of the animals, and made tools from ivory, bone, or stone. They made nets and traps from different fibers, and came up with numerous ways to fish and hunt their prey. The Polynesians had some nets that were so large, the entire community was needed in order to actually use them. In these ways, economic provision grew hand in hand with political organization, and the united efforts of getting food helped generate the state. Many tribes threw narcotics into streams to make the fish more cooperative. Many people and cultures across the planet have no doubt come up with ingenious ways to hunt and fish. But hunting now to a lot of people listening to this podcast has become sort of a game. Some sort of remembrance or homage to ancient days back when for the hunter and the hunted, it was a matter of life or death. Back then, hunting wasn't just a quest for food, but a war for security and mastery of their respective domains. A war so great that when compared to all the battles in recorded history are just a drop in the bucket that is the struggle for human survival. In the jungle, man still fights for his life. While there may not be many animals that attack him, unless cornered in the chase or desperate with starvation, there isn't always food to go around, and sometimes only the fighter is allowed to eat. We see in our museums today the relics of that war of the species. Knives, clubs, spears, arrows, lures, traps, boomerangs, slings, and all the tools and weapons primitive man used to win possession of the land and pass down the gift of security from every beast except man. Even today, after all these wars of elimination, Think of how many different populations move over the earth. If you take a stroll outside and really listen, you might be awed by all the different languages you hear. Insects buzzing, birds chirping, the hiss of snakes, etc. You might even feel like man is an intruder in this crowded setting, like we're the object of universal dread and endless hostility. Maybe one day these annoying bugs chattering buzzards and ungrateful plants will devour man and all his works, freeing the planet from this murderous biped with our unnatural weapons and careless feet. 
Hunting and fishing were not stages in economic development. They were modes of activity that have survived into the highest forms of civilized society. Once the center of life, there's still its hidden foundations. Behind our literature and philosophy, our rituals and art, we're still killers. Now, we do our hunting by proxy, not having the stomach for honest killing in the fields, but our memories of the chase live on in our joyful pursuit of anything weak and in the games of our children, even in the word game itself. In the last episode, I said that civilization is based upon the food supply. The cathedrals, libraries, theaters, and universities are all a facade. Living by hunting is not an original concept exclusive to man. Animals have done it long before we have, and will continue to do it long after we're gone. If man had just confined himself to live through hunting, he'd be no different from any other carnivore. He began to be more when out of the uncertain hunt, he developed the greater security and continuity of the pastoral life. This involved extremely important advantages, animal domestication, the breeding of cattle, and the use of milk. We don't know exactly how or when domestication began. Maybe it was when the helpless young of hunted animals were brought back to the camp as playthings for the children. The animals were still eaten, but just not as soon anymore. They acted as beasts of burden, but were accepted almost unanimously into the society of man. It became a friend of man and formed with him a community of labor and residence. The miracle of reproduction was brought under control and two captive animals could be turned into a herd. Animal milk released women from prolonged breastfeeding periods, lowered infant mortality, and provided a new and dependable food source. Population increases and life becomes more stable and orderly. While our dominion over animals begins to take root and grow, the greatest economic provision of all is being discovered. The importance of soil. In many cultures, while men hunted, women and children would go out and forage for anything that was edible. But not all people would sow the seeds from the things they harvested. We'll never know the exact moment man learned about the function of seeds and turned simple collecting into planting and harvesting. These important firsts are some of the mysteries of history that we can just guess about, but never definitively know. It's completely possible that when early man was out collecting, some seeds may have fallen into the dirt on their way back to camp and revealed the secrets and importance of planting. Some groups just threw seeds into the ground and let nature take its course. Others would put seeds into holes that they dug with a pointed stick as they walked the fields, and you can still see similar planting methods relatively recently. The second stage in complexity for this tool was the hoe. The digging stick was fitted with bone and a cross piece to take pressure from the foot. When the conquistadors arrived in Mexico, they saw that the Aztecs knew no other form of tilling than with the hoe. With the domestication of animals and development of metalwork, a heavier tool could be used known as the plow, and the deeper turning of the soil revealed a newfound fertility in the earth that quite literally changed the game for mankind. 
wild plants were domesticated, new ways were developed, and old ways were improved. Finally, nature taught man the art of provision and the virtue of prudence. Watching bees store their honey in hives and woodpeckers storing nuts in trees, man finally figured out, after who knows how long, the concept of saving food for the future. He found ways of preserving meat by smoking it, salting it, or freezing it. Even better, he began to build granaries, safe from the rain and vermin, and began to store food in them in preparation for the harsher months of the year. Slowly but surely, it became apparent that agriculture could provide a better and more stable food supply than hunting. With that realization, man took one of the three steps that led from beast to civilization. The three steps being speech, agriculture, and writing. We shouldn't believe that man instantly went from hunting to tilling. Not only was the change gradual, but it was never complete. Man simply added a new way of securing food to an old way, and for the most part throughout his history, he's preferred the old food to the new. We picture early man experimenting with thousands of products from the earth, trying to figure out which was safe to eat, mingling these things with the flesh he was accustomed to, while still yearning for the thrill of the hunt. Primitive peoples are fond of meat, even if they live predominantly off of grains, vegetables, and milk. If they come across the carcass of a recently dead animal, the result is likely to be a celebration, and little time is wasted in eating it. Some tribes have been known to feast for a week on a whale that had the misfortune of getting beached on their shores. The uncertainty of a food supply forced people to be omnivorous. Moths, tarantulas, other various insects, reptiles and their eggs, shellfish, frogs, toads, locusts, larvae, dogs, horses, and roots. Somewhere on this planet, each of these things are considered a delicacy. Some tribes were expert hunters of ants, others dried insects in the sun and stored them for feasts, and yet still others picked the lice from each other's hair and ate them with happiness. Death to one of man's greatest pests, if you have hair. The menu of lower hunting tribes barely differentiates itself from that of higher apes. The discovery of fire limited this indiscriminate appetite and when paired with agriculture, ultimately freed man from the need to hunt. Note, please keep in mind that I know these various foods are still eaten in many parts of the world today, and that people in general are actually pretty open to trying them because it isn't seen as some sort of food taboo as much as it used to be in, say, like, the 1930s or 40s, which is around when this book was published. I'm simply asking you to look at this narrative through the lens of a hungry primitive person as a way of explaining how our diet was so expansive and how some cultures across the planet have come to eat the things they eat and even consider them a delicacy, even though they're things that you yourself might find weird or inedible. End note. Cooking broke down the cellulose and starch of thousands of different types of plants which used to be indigestible in their raw state, and man eventually moved more to cereals, grains, and vegetables as his main reliance for food. At the same time, cooking softened up tough foods, which
which then in turn reduced the need for chewing, which by proxy didn't stop, but definitely slowed the decay of teeth, which could be considered a hallmark of civilization. Even with all the different things that made up mankind's diet, we still managed to find one more thing to add to it. Other people. Cannibalism at one time was practically universal, and has been found in nearly all primitive tribes at one point or another, and has still been recognized in modern times well into the 2000s. So, what was the origin of this practice? There is no guarantee that the custom arose due to a shortage of other food, even though there is an argument to be made there. But if it did start because of that reason, then once the taste for human flesh was formed, it survived long past the initial shortage of food and became a passionate predilection. All across the globe and many times over, you can find that human blood was considered a delicacy among tribes and for different reasons. For some, it was considered medicinal, and for others, it was considered a rite or covenant, with the belief that the drinker would be blessed with the strength and vitality of the victim. Primitive man didn't recognize any distinction in morals between eating humans or other animals. If you look at it through a different lens, the practice did offer certain advantages. It anticipated Jonathan Swift's plan for the utilization of unnecessary children, and it gave the old an opportunity to die usefully. If you're looking at things from this perspective, then even funerals would seem like an unnecessary luxury. To some people, it might even seem more inhumane and barbaric to torture someone to death behind the guise of piety for their lord than it would be to simply eat him after he died. Everyone has their delusions and beliefs. Note, I wanted to elaborate a bit more on what was said about the utilization of unnecessary children. Jonathan Swift published a satirical, and I want to emphasize the word satirical, essay in 1729 where he basically offers up a solution for overpopulation by saying that poor people should sell their children to the rich so that they can be eaten. It saves the child from growing up in a life of poverty, the parents can start climbing their way out of poverty from the profit of the sale, it reduces the issue of overpopulation that they were dealing with, and overall reduces the burden on the state and would boost their economy because money would start circulating internally due to the new resource. This satirical essay is commonly referred to as a modest proposal. So, in a long-winded way, I'm basically saying that in a cannibalistic culture, they probably don't have much of an issue with overpopulation, or the poor, or homeless. It's kind of a messed up joke. End note. I feel like right here is a good stopping point to say that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Audible. For those of you who don't know what Audible is, Audible is the leading provider for spoken word entertainment and audiobooks. If you have any kind of spoken word itch, Audible can definitely scratch it for you. I personally use this cross-platform service for all my audiobook needs, and when I'm not listening to borderline encyclopedic books about history, I do listen to a lot of fantasy and sci-fi genres. One of my favorite series that I just finished, which I think needs to be made into a movie or four, 
is the Helldiver series. If you like post-apocalyptic sci-fi, then this series is definitely one you should check out. My link for a free 30-day trial of Audible will be in the show description. Let's get back to the show. 2. The Foundations of Industry If man began with speech and civilization with agriculture, then industry began with fire. Man didn't invent it, it was provided to him by nature through various means. The friction of sticks, a lightning bolt, maybe the right chemicals mixed at the right time, or the sun just shined down on something dry for a little too long. Man simply had the wit to imitate nature and improve upon it. He put the miracle of fire to a thousand uses, maybe at first he used it as a torch to start winning his war against his lifelong enemy the dark, then maybe he used it for warmth and moved freely from his native tropics to areas that used to be otherwise inhospitable, slowly spreading his dominion over the planet. Then he began applying it to metals, softening them, tempering them, and combining them into forms that were stronger than how he first found them. Fire was always a miracle to primitive man, deserving to be worshipped as a god. Man offered it countless ceremonies of devotion and made it the center of his life and home. The word hearth proves this. It refers to a fireplace, but also used as the symbol of one's home. He carried it carefully as he moved from place to place and would not easily let it die. The Romans punished the careless Vestal Virgin who allowed the sacred fire to be extinguished with whippings, beatings, and even death. Note, the sacred fire of Vesta was a sacred eternal flame in ancient Rome. The Vestal Virgins, originally numbering two, later four, and eventually six, were selected by lots and served for 30 years, tending the holy fire and performing other rituals connected to domestic life. The eternal burning of the sacred fire was an analogous sign that determined the fate of Rome. Allowing the sacred fire to die out was a serious dereliction of duty. It suggested that the goddess had withdrawn her protection from the city. Vestals guilty of this offense were severely punished. The sacred fire burned in Vesta's circular temple built in the Roman Forum below the Palatine Hill in pre-Republican times. The temple burned completely on at least four occasions and caught fire on two others. The rites of Vesta ended in 394 by order of the Christian Emperor Theodosius I in his campaign to eliminate pagan practices in Rome. The fire was extinguished and the College of Vestals disbanded. End note. Meanwhile, in the midst of hunting, herding, and agriculture, invention was busy, and the primitive brain was turning its gears to develop mechanical answers to the economic puzzles of life. At first, it would seem that man was content to accept whatever nature offered him, the fruits and vegetables as his food, the skin and fur of animals as his clothes, the caves and the hillsides as his home. Then, possibly, because a lot of history is guessing and the rest is biased, he imitated the tools and industry of the animals. He saw beavers building dams, 
the birds making nests and bowers, and the chimpanzees building things that almost resemble huts. He envied the power of their claws, teeth, tusks, and horns, and the toughness of their hides. So he set to work developing tools and weapons to rival these natural gifts. Man is a tool-using animal, but these tools and other differences from animals that we pride ourselves on are just differences in technological advancement. There was tons of potential for tools in the plant world that surrounded man. From bamboo, he made shafts, knives, and bottles. From branches, he made tongs and pincers. And from barks and fibers, he wove cord and clothing of a hundred different types. And above all, he made himself a stick. It was admittedly a modest invention, but it was so adaptable that man always looked at it as a symbol of power and authority. From the staff of the shepherd to the rod of Moses and the mace of the king. In agriculture, the stick became the hoe. In war, it became the lance, javelin, or spear. Again, Man used the mineral world and shaped stones into a plethora of instruments, hammers, anvils, kettles, scrapers, arrowheads, wedges, levers, and axes. From the animal world, he made ladles, spoons, gourds, plates, cups, razors, and hooks from the shells of the shore, and the same tools and more from the horns, bones, teeth, claws, and ivory from the beasts. Most of these tools had handles of wood. The ingenuity and resourcefulness of primitive man probably equals if not surpasses that of modern man. We only differ from them through the social accumulation of knowledge, materials, and tools, rather than some kind of innate superiority in our brains. Nature men excelled in meeting the needs of a life with ingenious wit. This primitive ingenious wit was proudly put on display in the art of weaving, and even here, animals and insects showed man the way. The webs of spiders and the nests of birds set an example so obvious for man that weaving was probably one of the earliest arts of the human race. Bark, leaves, and grass fibers were woven into clothing and tapestries so well that they couldn't be rivaled even today with our modern tools and machines. Again, art began where nature left off. The bones of birds and fishes were polished into needles, and the tendons of animals were drawn into threads delicate enough to pass through the finest needles of today. Bark was beaten into mats, skins were dried for clothing and shoes, fibers were twisted into the strongest yarn, and supple branches were woven into baskets. Akin to basketry, and possibly even born from it, was pottery. Then, we begin using earth itself and clay for making various vessels for cooking, storing, and transporting, or even just as a luxury or decorative piece. Designs carved into the wet clay by fingers or sticks were one of the first forms of art, and possibly one of the origins of writing. Out of sun-dried clay, primitive tribes made brick, but that was a later stage of the building arts, binding the mud hut of the primitive in a chain of continuous development. 
Some primitive people had no dwellings at all, and preferred the earth and the sky. Some slept in the hollow of trees, some lived in caves, others here and there built a wind shelter of branches or dug into the earth and covered the top with branches and twigs. At some point from these wind shelters, when sides were added, evolved the hut, a tiny cottage of grasses, branches, and earth large enough to cover a few people, and then into great huts, large enough to shelter 30 or more. The nomad hunter preferred a tent which he could carry wherever the hunt may lead him. The higher nature peoples built with wood. Finally, people began to build with finely cut boards, a dwelling we would consider a real house by modern standards. And the evolution of the wooden dwelling was complete. Only three more developments were needed for primitive man to complete all the essentials for economic civilization. The mechanisms of transport, the process of trade, and the medium of exchange. The man carrying cargo from the modern plane represents the earliest and latest stages in the history of transportation. In the beginning, man was his own beast of burden. Then he invented ropes, levers, and pulleys, and conquered and loaded the animal. He made the first sledge by having his animal pull long branches across the ground carrying his goods. He put logs as rollers under the sledge. He cut cross sections of the log and made the greatest mechanical invention, the wheel. He put wheels under the sledge and made a cart. Other logs were bound together as rafts or turned into canoes and then the streams became his most convenient means of transportation. By land, he went first through trackless fields and hills, then by trails, and ultimately roads. He studied the stars and guided his caravans across all types of landscapes by tracing his route in the sky. He paddled or sailed bravely from island to island and finally crossed oceans to spread his culture from continent to continent. The main problems were solved before written history ever began. Since human skills and natural resources are unequally distributed, some people may be enabled due to the development of specific talents or by its proximity to needed resources to produce certain goods more cheaply than its neighbors. And out of those goods, it makes more than it consumes and then offers the surplus to other people in exchange for theirs. This is the origin of trade. Trade and surplus at first was by an interchange of gifts. Even today, a present, even if it's just a meal, sometimes precedes or seals the deal on a trade or business transaction. Exchanges of goods were facilitated in different ways, such as war, robbery, tribute, fines, and compensation. Goods had to be kept moving. Gradually, a bartering system naturally developed, and trading posts and markets were established occasionally, then periodically, and finally they became permanent establishments, a dependable place where those who had some good in excess might offer it for some good that they needed. For a long time, commerce was purely that kind of exchange, 
and centuries passed before a circulating medium of value was established to speed up the trading process. Imagine how many days you'd have to wander around in a marketplace with animal bones, beeswax, and like a blanket in your bag to trade before finding a person who has the things you need and wants the specific stuff you have. The earliest mediums of exchange were things that were universally in demand, meaning that probably everyone would take it as a form of payment. Dates, salt, skins, furs, and weapons. For example, two knives equaled a pair of shoes, those three together equaled a blanket, those four equaled armor, those five equaled a horse, and a few horses equaled a wife. This isn't an accurate representation of an increase in value in a bartering system, but it paints the picture. Pretty much everything was used as money by someone at some time. Cattle were a convenient form of money among hunters and herders. They paid for themselves through breeding and were easy to carry since they transported themselves. Even in Homer's time, men and things were valued in terms of cattle. The bronze armor of Diomedes was worth nine oxen, the golden armor of Glaucus was worth a hundred, and a skilled slave was worth four. The Romans used words to tie cattle and money together, pecus and pecunia, in that order respectively, and stamped the image of an ox on their coins. When metals came into the picture, they slowly replaced other goods as the standard unit of exchange. Copper, bronze, iron, and finally, because they conveniently represented great worth, but without weighing too much and taking up too much space, silver and gold became the currency of man. The advancement from different goods to a metal currency doesn't seem to have been made by primitive men, it was left for the historic civilizations to invent coinage and credit, and by further facilitating the exchange of surpluses, we increased again the wealth and comfort of man. 3. Economic Organization Trade and commerce was the great disruptor of the primitive world. Until commerce came bringing money and profit in its wake, there was no real concept of property and subsequently little need for government. In the early stages of economic development, property was limited for the most part to things personally used. This is my knife. These are my shoes. The property sense applied so strongly that even the wife was sometimes buried with the husband slash owner and it applied so weakly to things not personally used that in their case, the sense of property, instead of being innate, required continuous reinforcement. Almost everywhere among primitive peoples, land was owned by the community. They owned and tilled the soil together and shared the fruits of their labor together. Land was believed to be like water and wind. You can't personally own it or sell it. Communism regarding food was also common practice among primitive men. It was expected of the ones who had food to share it with those who didn't, and for travelers to be fed at any home they stopped at along their journeys. 
and for communities suffering from famine to be maintained by their neighbors. If you asked, you received. So why did this primitive communism disappear as men rose to what we would biasly call civilization? Some believe that communism is unbiological or some sort of handicap in the struggle for existence. They believe it gives an insufficient stimulus for inventiveness and industry, and that the failure to reward the more able and to punish the less able made for a forced leveling of capacity that was hostile to growth, development, or the successful competition with other groups. Communism brought a certain security to those who survived the disease and accidents caused by the poverty and ignorance of primitive society. But it didn't take them out of that poverty. Individualism brought wealth, but it also brought with it insecurity and slavery. It stimulated the latent abilities in man, but it also intensified the competition of life and made men truly recognize poverty which up until then was shared equally with everyone and oppressed no one. Note, maybe one reason communism tends to appear primarily at the beginning of civilization is that it tends to flourish in times of scarcity. The common danger of starvation forces people to put aside petty differences in the fight for survival. And when that danger passes, social cohesion is weakened and individualism increases. Communism ends where luxury begins. As society becomes more complex and the division of labor separates men into diverse occupations and trades, it becomes more and more unlikely that all these different trades and services will hold equal value to the group at large. Inevitably, those who can perform jobs and tasks that are considered vital to the group will take more than what could be considered an equal share from the growing wealth of the community. Every growing civilization is a portrait and the multiplying inequalities that are inherent in civilization are the layers of paint on the overall masterpiece. The natural differences of human endowment coupled with the differences of opportunity produce artificial differences in wealth and power, and when no laws suppress these artificial inequalities, they reach a boiling point where the poor have nothing to lose by violence, and the chaos of revolution levels civilization back down to a community of destitution and poverty. Hence, the dream of communism lurks in every modern society as a memory of our genus, a memory of a simple and more equal life, and where inequality or insecurity rises beyond sufferance, men welcome the return to a condition which they idealize, where they remember its equality, but not its poverty for some reason. Periodically, the land gets itself redistributed, legally or not. Periodically, wealth is redistributed, and the pyramid of ability take shape again. Under whatever laws may be enacted, the abler man somehow manages to get the richer soil, the better place, the larger share. Soon, 
he's strong enough to dominate the state and rewrite or interpret laws. And in time, the inequality is the same as it used to be. In this aspect, all economic history is the slow heartbeat of the social organism. End note. Communism could survive more easily in societies where man was always on the move and danger was constantly present. Hunters and herders had no need for private property and land, but when agriculture became the way of life for man, it became obvious that the land was most productively tilled when the rewards would go to the family who tilled it. Consequently, since there is a natural selection of institutions and ideas, as well as of organisms and groups, the passage from hunting to agriculture brought a change from tribal property to family property. The most economical unit of production became the unit of ownership. As the family took on more of a patriarchal form, with authority centralized in the oldest male, property became increasingly individualized, and the need to leave behind a legacy arose. Frequently, an adventurous individual would leave the family, venture beyond traditional boundaries, and with hard labor, claim land for himself from the forest, jungle, woods, or marsh. He would guard this land viciously as his own, and in the end, society recognized his claim, and another form of individual property began. As the pressure of population increased, and the older land was exhausted, this type of reclamation went on in a widening circle, until in the more complex societies, individual ownership became the order of the day. The invention of money cooperated with these factors by facilitating the accumulation, transport, and transfer of this property. The old tribal rights and traditions re-emerged in the technical ownership of the soil by the village community or king, and in periodical redistributions of the land, but after an epic natural fluctuation between the old and the new, private property established itself indefinitely as the basic economic institution of historical society. Agriculture, while generating civilization, led not only to private property, but to slavery. In purely hunting communities, slavery had been relatively unknown. The wives and children were enough to do the basic labor. The men alternated between the exciting activities of hunting or war and peace. The characteristic laziness of primitive people had its origin, presumably, in this habit of slowly recovering from the fatigue of battle or hunting. It wasn't so much laziness, more just much-needed rest. To transform this type of habit, two things were needed. The routine of tillage and the organization of labor. Such organization remains loose or spontaneous where men are working for themselves. But when they work for others, the organization of labor tends to become much stricter because it was reinforced often with force. The rise of agriculture and the inequality of men led to the employment of the socially weak by the socially strong. Not until then did it occur to the victor of war that the only good prisoner is a live one.
butchering and cannibalism declined, slavery grew, and in a way it was a very slight moral improvement that men ceased to kill or eat their fellow man and simply made them slaves. A similar development on a larger scale can be seen today, when a nation that wins a war no longer exterminates the enemy, but instead enslaves them with reparations. You lost this war, now pay me for it. Once slavery was established and it proved profitable, it was extended by condemning to it those who couldn't pay their debts, criminals that refused to reform, and by raids that were planned specifically to capture slaves. War helped to make slavery, and slavery helped to make war. Probably it was through centuries of slavery that we as a species acquired its traditions and habits of how we approach work. No one would do any hard or grueling labor if he can avoid it without sparking some kind of physical, economic, or social penalty. Slavery became part of the discipline by which man was prepared for industry. Indirectly, it furthered civilization insofar as it increased wealth and for a minority of people, created leisure. After some centuries, man took it for granted. Aristotle argued for slavery as natural and inevitable. Gradually, through agriculture and slavery, through the division of labor and the inherent diversity of men, the comparative equality of natural society was replaced by inequality and class divisions. In the primitive group, we find that there is no distinction between slave and free, no serfdom, no caste, and little of any distinction between leaders and followers. Slowly, the increasing complexity of schools and trades subjected the unskilled or weak to the skilled or strong. Every invention was a new weapon in the hands of the strong and further strengthened them in their mastery and use of the weak. Inheritance added superior opportunity to superior possessions and stratified once homogeneous societies into a maze of classes and castes. Rich and poor increasingly became conscious of wealth and poverty. The class war began to run as a thread through all of history and the state arose as an indispensable instrument for the regulation of classes the protection of property, the waging of war, and the organization of peace. Well, that is the end of this episode. It's different, but I hope you like it and found it enjoyable. A lot of this is a transcription from the book, the original source material. I took it upon myself to modernize a lot of the language and added my own interpretations all over. And I left some as is because I think they get their point across beautifully. I've also added some notes of my own in addition to the original ones, so that certain points can be more clearly understood if you aren't already familiar with some of the things referenced. It's just to save you some of the work. I do have a Patreon now, so if you'd like to support the show, please feel free to click on the link in the description and check it out. Any amount helps. Once again, thanks for listening, I hope you enjoyed, and I hope you tune in to the next one.